by God's providence, Ahithophel's counsel is frustrated, allowing David to safely cross over Jordan. Absalom, however, is relentless in his quest, and he continues his hunt for his father, the king of Israel, even David, our beloved. This is the 38th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 17. We pick up the narrative in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then said Hushai unto Zadok and unto Abathah the priests, Thus and thus did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and thus have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Lodge not this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily pass over, lest the king be swallowed up and all the people that are with him. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed by Engogal, but they might not be seen to come into the city. And a wench went and told them, and they went and told King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but they went both of them away quickly and came to a man's house in Behurim, which had a well in his court, whither they went down. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground corn thereon, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman, to the house, they said, Where is Ahamaz and Jonathan? And the woman said unto them, They be gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that they were departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said unto David, Arise and pass quickly over the water, for thus hath Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people that were with him and they passed over Jordan by the morning light. There lacked not one of them that was not gone over Jordan. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Then came David to Mahayanim, and Absalom passed over Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made... Amasa, captain of the host, instead of Joab, which Amasa was a man's son, whose name was Ithra, an Israelite, that went in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister to Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom pitched in the land of Gilead. And it came to pass, when David was come to Mahayim, that Sobi, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon, and Mekir, the son of Amiel, and Lodbar, and Barzili, the Gileadite of Rogelim, brought beds and basins, and earthen vessels, and wheat, and barley, and flour, and pitched corn, and parched corn, and beans, and lentils, and parched pulse, and honey, and butter, and sheep, and cheese of kind, for David and for the people that were with him to eat. For they said, the people is hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The Hebrew writer in writing in chapter 12 of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 11 through verse 13, as God speaks through the prophet of chastisement and the profiting thereby, he says this, by the same spirit that moved the prophet to write in Second Samuel, so does the Hebrew writer write, saying this by inspiration of God, Now no chastening for the present 
seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day through this historical narrative. Now as a result of the courage, faith, and loyalty to the anointed king, as we saw last time, a female bond slave turns the tables on the evil determination of Absalom and Ahithophel. And so by frustrating the counsel of Ahithophel, David is strengthened along with the entire company. And at this point, he is given the opportunity for safe passage over the River Jordan in a single night. If Ahithophel's counsel had been heeded instead of David's spy Hushai, Absalom would have prevailed and David would have been captured and most likely assassinated and executed. But all that had changed by the intervention of one woman who was a cunning ally to the rightful king. This was all according to the providential orchestration of God who was setting both Absalom and Ahithophel for destruction. And that is how God works. God sets up the wicked for their own destruction. He frustrates the plans of the wicked and takes them in their own craftiness. And we need to rely upon that when we are in the midst of our own cultural battles. Now consider for a moment the depth of disappointment of Ahithophel, which drove him to self-murder. But let's first begin by analyzing the man. Let's look at his position and then some possible reasons why he would do such a thing. This was a terrible thing. Then we should ask, were there alternatives? Were there alternatives to Ahithophel's self-murder, if any? But before we consider Ahithophel's situation, we must hasten to say that whenever there is suicide, whenever there is a suicide, it affects not only the man self-murdering, but it affects everyone involved, not just the individual. Suicide has a systemic force associated to it, whereby those closest to it often never really heal from it. It is perhaps one of the most terrible things you could ever imagine. It is a horrible act of violence against the self, inflicting harm upon the individual, and a distinguishing act of hatred against the image of God in man. Suicide is evil, and it is wrong, and it actually solves nothing. In fact, it often exacerbates whatever the problem is. Suicide in the United States is the leading cause of death with 45,000 and counting deaths registered in 2020. It's not guns. It's not climate change. It's not motor vehicle crashes that lead deaths. It's suicide. This means that approximately every 11 minutes, think about it, 11 minutes, another person kills him or herself the number of people who think about or attempt suicide is even higher. That means that in the space of a one-hour sermon, in the space of this sermon, on this day, almost six people will have taken their own lives. 
According to the CDC, suicide in the United States is a major national public health issue and America has one of the highest suicide rates among the wealthier nations. Think about that. America. In 2020, there were 45,799 recorded suicides, up from 42,000 in 2014, and these are only those that were reported. But now the real question is why? Why would someone inflict mortal self-harm? Why would an individual kill himself? We didn't think about killing himself. Why did Ahithophel take his own life? Why did Judas take his own life? Why would anyone take their own life? Life, which is the most important and most glorious, precious thing that can be given to an individual apart from the new birth. Why? That's the real question. So let's consider Ahithophel's situation in order to try and make sense of all of this. Firstly, Ahithophel was a proud man. He was regarded as God's mouthpiece. In other words, whatever he said, whatever counsel he had given, the people thought it was as if God himself spoke it. For Ahithophel's counsel to be disproven or shunned or marginalized or corrected by Hushai, David's spy, Ahithophel thought it a personal attack. It was seen by him as a personal shunning, a personal attack. In other words, in his mind, it stripped him of his personality. It stripped him of his prideful power. And because of his high self-esteem, which was, of course, idolatry, that was just too much for him to bear. His plan had been frustrated. Secondly, Ahithophel was also a fearful man. But his problem was that he feared the wrong man. He feared Absalom, who might take vengeance upon him for giving him wrong counsel, instead of fearing the God-man, the Christ of God, God himself. Ahithophel feared a mere mortal man. Thirdly, Ahithophel was also a self-absorbed man. He was so self-absorbed, he was in his own vacuum. He was so selfish that he couldn't see beyond himself. He obviously had little regard for anyone else that might be affected by his act of self-murder. A selfish act. A wicked act. Fourthly, if Ahithophel had any connection with God, if he had any connection with God, if he had lost that a long time ago. This is what happens when a man or any individual loses touch with God. A loss of God is a loss of light and life. A loss of God brings one into the darkness of despair, fear, where only death rather than life is for this individual, for this individual, the only answer. For that individual, by the time they get to that point, all hope is lost. But this is deception. This is not reality. Because darkness, when you go into that dark place, and if you ever have spoken to anyone that has contemplated, seriously, even attempted suicide, they go into this dark place of despair. And that darkness brings deception. But it works the other way about as well. Deception itself when they're deceived into thinking that that's the way out, that itself brings them into more darkness, and darkness brings hopelessness, and hopelessness, in the end, brings death. Ahithophel was deceived into thinking that suicide was his only answer, the answer to his problems, and that brought him to the brink of darkness. He thought that he could escape 
the shame, that, that pride that he had. He didn't want to be ashamed. He thought that he could escape that frustration by taking his own life. And yet, that simply brought him before the judgment throne of God. He exacerbated the problems. The fifth point here is Ahithophel was by nature darkness himself. According to the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, he states that natural man is darkness himself. Not only is he in darkness, he is the darkness. He is the darkness, reaching out for the darkness. And that's what Ahithophel was doing. Because of his pride and his self-absorption, he was reaching out for the darkness that always was calling him because he himself was darkness. What Ahithophel needed was to be translated from darkness into light. Moreover, he needed to be translated from the power of that darkness into the newness of light and the power of the resurrection. And without the power of that resurrection, there can be no dispelling of darkness. Ahithophel was unable to see the light as a result of being blinded by the power of darkness. Number six. Darkness and death are bedfellows. The two go together in the same way as light and life go together. Once Ahithophel embraced the darkness, he had to embrace death. He had to go forward to embracing of death because Ahithophel's counsel was evil. He was susceptible to darkness. Jesus tells us in John 3.19, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Ahithophel's deeds were evil. Number seven, the act of self-murder is the declaration, a clear and powerful declaration of an intense hatred against God. God declares to Solomon in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 36, But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Ahithophel loved death. He sinned against God by forging an ungodly alliance with the rebellious Absalom, making him an adversary against God. And that sinful hatred in turn, led Ahithophel to love death. Ahithophel loved his position and self-esteem so much that he chose to end his life rather than to repair his life. What must be stressed is that suicide is not only the self-murder of a human being, it can also be applied to the self-murder of an entire nation. The suicide of an entire nation. Ahithophel's fundamental problem which led to his suicide was fundamentally he forgot God. He forgot the only one that could repair the situation. All he needed was repentance, humiliation, repenting before God, but he was unwilling to seek the counsel of God. He was unwilling to repent. He was unwilling to shift alliances from Absalom to David. He was unwilling to seek God's counsel and instead he followed his own counsel which, of course, destroyed him in the end. When we follow our own counsel, we are on the precipice of destruction. And so whenever a nation believes that it can safely ignore God, follow its own counsel, rebel against God, blaspheme the authority of God, or flatly nullify the law of God, they are committing national suicide. America today is committing national suicide by forgetting God. The Church of Jesus Christ is 
committing ecclesiastical suicide by forgetting God. The United States, in concert with much of the world, is in the process of hanging themselves in a mass suicide attempt as a result of the darkness, deception, and hatred that they have toward God and against His Christ. That's what we face. That's what we have today in America and in the world. We are on the precipice of national suicide. So what should the man have done? What should, if anything, should Ahithophel have done? What is the remedy for self-murder, whether it be a person or a family, a church or a nation? What we fail to see in Ahithophel's situation is repentance, prayer, and supplication. Repentance, prayer, and supplication. It seems that by this time he had no relationship with God whatsoever. And whenever there is a loss of communion and union with God, hope becomes very frail. Suicide activists, and I call them activists, I dare not say that they're victims because they've only victimized themselves unnecessarily. Self-murderers need help. They need hope. They need the Christ. They need to repent of their hatred against God Instead of denying him, they need to turn to him. Ahithophel lost all hope because he failed to turn to the only hope for his life. He failed to turn to God. And yet, where there is life, there is hope. Whether it's for a person, a family, a church, or even a nation, as long as there is life, there is hope. Let me put it another way. As long as there is time, time to confess, time to sorrow over sin and repent and to be ashamed for the evil done and then turning from it, as long as there's that time to do those things, there is hope. Once Ahithophel cut off his life, he cut off the time he might have to have mended his relationship with God. And so, unwilling to look to the only one that could give him hope, he sets his affairs in order and tragically hangs himself. We see this in verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, prideful man that he was, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city. He placed his household in order. He hanged himself and he died. Now this sad event left Absalom strategically hamstrung, at least for a season, since his fundamental counselor had killed himself. He had no one to rely upon in the same way that he relied upon Ahithophel. Pretty much he was on his own instead of instead for, for Hushai's counsel, which of course Hushai was a spy, but really he had no one to rely upon him in the same way. He was pretty much on his own and that have probably been very disconcerting to the rebel prince. So after the death of Ahithophel, because of Hushai's counsel, which went against Ahithophel's counsel, David was able to pass over the Jordan River with Absalom hot on his tail, and yet he was able to pass over. And that was a glorious thing. If he was not able to pass over, he would have been destroyed. And we see this in verse 24. But Absalom is relentless. Notice, he passes over Jordan, he and all of his men of Israel with him, in order to pursue David the king. He makes then Amasa his war chief, and camps in the land of Gilead. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Now, the extensive description of Amasa, when searched out, proves to be David's nephew, making him Absalom's cousin, together within the same family 
according to the chastisement that in his own house will rise up against him, we have these men in David's family conspiring against David. Another blow to poor David. This too is a sad event, since uncles are to be regarded highly, even as fathers. And so we see here that the rebellious generation of David's house goes beyond just his immediate family. It extended to his nephew. And this shows how extensive God's chastisement upon David was and how systemic sin is. By this time, however, David's people are beyond tired. You think about it. They're on the run. They're being hunted. They've got no provisions. They're, they're now, they just pass over Jordan overnight, through the night. They're exhausted. They're tired. Having to cross over the Jordan in haste along with the stress of being hunted, it's safe to say that they were hungry and tired. They were probably beside themselves. And that's the time when God provides. When we are at our wit's end, when there is nothing substantial that we can see in the horizon that will alleviate our stress, our fear, our anxieties, our needs. That is where God wants us to be. Because it's at that time when we have to trust God. When we had nothing left, we must trust God. So sometimes God brings us to the point where we have nothing left. But it is at this time when God provides Now what's really, really interesting though, however, about this turn of events is that there's no record of prayer. There's no recorded prayer by David or anyone of his company that that at this point is, is asking God to intervene and to bring them the need for provisions of food and encouragement. Now there might have been, but we don't see it. And it's very conspicuous that it is omitted. There's no prayer. And yet, God is going to bring them the provisions that he knew they needed. They didn't even need to pray. God knew what they needed when they needed it, and he was going to provide what they needed exactly at the time when they needed it. And that is exactly what God does. He provides for us without even being asked. Notice Jesus, how he tells the disciples as much when teaching them to pray. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. Notice the last phrase. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask of him. Even before they asked God, God was already preparing the way for their provisions. God knew what David's people needed even though there's no record of them asking. Perhaps they were too beyond asking. Perhaps they were too hungry, too too weary, too frightened to pause to pray. But the Holy Spirit knew what they needed. He knew their predicament. In fact, He brought them to that place of weariness. He brought them to that place when they had nothing left but to trust God. We have a saying on a plaque in our bathroom, We never know how much Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. They had nothing left but God. And the Holy Spirit, the mediation of Christ, intercedes for them. Notice how Paul explains this for our admonition in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and following. Likewise, the Spirit 
also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit knew what they needed when they needed it. And he provided exactly what they needed. Speaking of the Christ, how he is the intercessor, both Isaiah and the Hebrew writer confirm what Paul told the church at Rome. In Isaiah chapter 53 and in Hebrews chapter 7, we read this. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus knew what they needed when they needed it, and he interceded with the Father, and he sent the provisions through the Spirit. The Hebrew writer writing in 7.25 of the book of the Hebrews, Wherefore he is able to also save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Don't ever think that just because you're at your wit's end that it's all over. It is exactly where God wants you. He wants you nowhere. He wants you to be in the place where there's a wilderness, where there is no water, where there's no hope, in order for you to trust Him that He would give you water, the water of life, the water of hope. You see, what happens in the Christian life is we think when we're in a place of darkness that God has abandoned us. But God is not abandoning us. God is strengthening us. He is going to provide for us. So having just avoided a tragic decimation by Absalom and almost at their wits end almost uh, to a place beyond hope they travel over the Jordan they thought they'd be safe but Absalom goes over the Jordan too hot on their trail and now God he acts he performs he brings strength and encouragement from a very unlikely source and that's what God does from a very unlikely source he brings encouragement he brings The children of Ammon, particularly the son of the Ammonite king, Nahash, and others. Notice verses 27 and following. And it came to pass when David was come to Mahayan, that Shobi, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon, and Makar, the son of Amiel, of Lodabar, and Basili, the Giladite of Rogilim, brought beds. Notice, notice, He just doesn't give him a bed. He didn't just give him a piece of meat, a corn kernel. Notice, when God opens the doors, He gives all. He brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour and parched corn and beans and lentils and parched pulse and honey and butter and sheep and cheese of kind for David and there was enough for the people that were with him to eat. That's how God works. That's what God does. When we trust God, not only do we see an unlikely befriending by a select group of the children of Ammon, the support comes from Mahaman, which is, think about it, He's, this man is from Ishbosheth's old city. Ishbosheth. If you remember, 
was Saul's older son. He had taken over the ten tribes. He was going to be the king over Israel after the death of Saul and Jonathan. But he was killed, moving David into the position of king over the twelve tribes. God details two others here that are involved in David's support, Machir and Bezillai. These are unlikely helpers. You know, sometimes we think, that person might help me or that person. And God says, no, 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 I've got something more incredible for you. I'm going to give you help from an unlikely source. Makir had initially taken in Jonathan's son Mephibosheth after the death of Saul, which shows us a certain character trait of these individuals. They had compassion. They were self-sacrificial. Just think about it. They're bringing all of these provisions to David as a smiting, a poke in the eye of Absalom. And yet Absalom has the greater force at this point. What courage! What self-sacrifice! Obviously both Mekir and, 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 and David had a kindred spirit since both men sought to care for Mephibosheth after the death of Jonathan. Actually, this was a common bond. Both loved Jonathan, were willing to do whatever they could to protect his legacy. Mekir knew Jonathan, he loved David, and that's probably what moved him to support the legitimate king. But it took courage. Then there was Barzillai, who we get to know more in chapter 19. His testimony is incredibly tender and honest. When we get there, we'll examine that more closely. But for now, Barzillai was upwards of 80 years old. And because of his stewardship of God's things, he was very wealthy. So God is bringing in this this old man, who's a courageous man, not caring for his life, a wealthy man who stewarded God's goods for just a time as this. And so, out of the abundance of his wealth, he gives to David. And if not for his support, David and his entire entourage might not have been able to muster enough strength to successfully defeat Absalom. The kingdom's advance, if not for these men, the kingdom's advance would have come to an end and the future would have been lost. And you think about that. It's a great, great narrative, great story, historically accurate. Consider the lessons. Consider the practicality of what's going on here. Beloved, those who have means, whether it is monetary means or simply time, which is a precious commodity, simply time to give some assistance to the work of the kingdom, often these are the people who hold the key to successfully helping others. In the case of ministry, those with means and those with time to volunteer also hold the key to whether or not a ministry becomes productive or is maintained or advancing in the kingdom's work or whether or not it will endure into the future. So what we need to ask ourselves is are we investing in the kingdom of God? Are we investing in the kingdom of God which is represented by the people of the church by encouraging them and supporting them? Those who are on the front lines of the battle need support. If not for these men, David and his people would have been destroyed. If not for the courage and the self-sacrifice and the giving of themselves, God was very precise in dealing with these two men in the order that he gives them in the annals of the divine historical record When he speaks of them, he speaks of them in a very positive way. 
In other words, he recognizes them in the annals of history because they were invested in the work of God through David and they made it known by their actions. You know, we will never know of all the people throughout history who gave themselves and their wealth and their time and their energy to the kingdom, supporting men like Calvin and, 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 and Zwingli, Knox and V-Ray and others. Those who are not in the history books. And yet without them, there would be no history books for the kingdom's worth. What these men did for David was pivotal in his victory. But there's also a spiritual, a gospel lesson here as well. Each of these items, the beds and the corn and the animals, these are all symbolic of some spiritual blessing that these two men gave to David. So consider the list. The first thing listed is beds. Well, these men brought beds. You think about this. They didn't just bring food. They brought beds. These guys were sleeping in the open fields. They were sleeping on the trees. They were sleeping in the dew. They were sleeping in the hot. They were sleeping in the cold. They brought them beds so they could rest. Well, that's a practical thing. But spiritually, beds symbolize a place of rest. It's where we recuperate. A bed is a place of restful peace and relaxation from harm. It's a place where the body sleeps and the spirit is renewed and the body is renewed after a restful night. You know, we often talk about a restful night's sleep in our beds. And that's exactly what Isaiah refers to. In Isaiah 57, 2, he says, He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. We are at rest. We are at rest in Christ. It is often spoken of, on the other hand, as a sickbed. But the context of whenever it's used as a sickbed is dealing with rest and recuperation. We read this in Mark chapter 6 and Acts chapter 5. In Mark 6.54, we read this. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, and ran through that whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was, in order to bring them to the one who would give them rest in their bed. And believers, this is Acts 5, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might somehow cover them and they would be healed. The saints are said to sing upon their beds. Well, that's what we do. When we find that we have rest in Christ, we break out in praises before God. In Psalm 149.5, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. However, the symbolism of the bed is used negatively when the wicked rest inactively, lazily, upon their beds, trusting in their own works of righteousness. And this is not a bed of singing, but rather a sick bed without any kind of recuperation or rest in Christ. And we read this in Amos 6, verses 3 and following. Notice. Notice how God is condemning the lazy, inactive individual, not able to sing upon the bed, but just reclining in their beds. Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon their beds of ivory, their prideful ivory tower beds, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock, 
and the calves out of the midst of the stall. In other words, you who think you're a Christian, you hypocrites and Pharisees, you that are lying on your ivory tower thinking that you are God's great creation to the world and doing nothing for the kingdom, that chant to the sound of the violin, oh, you're singing the psalms, and invented themselves instruments of music. Oh, look how musical we are. Like David, that drink wine and bowls, the Lord's Supper, and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go to captivity with the first that go to captivity, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. Inactivity in the work of God is condemnation. In the case of David, he is given the bed of rest and peace with all of his people so that he could recuperate and be strengthened. The second thing listed is David is given basins. And you ask, well, why basins? Well, basins were simply used to hold water, hold water to wash in. And he was given wine to drink. So the basins were water and wine, receptacles. Thus, the symbology of the water of life and the wine of atoning forgiveness is crystal clear. David, at this point, by these two men coming to David to strengthen him, he's being reconciled to God. The chastisement is almost complete. He's being restored. This is symbolic restoration. It seems as if God is telling David that the curse is about to end. His chastisement is about to end. And now he's offering water and the blood represented by the wine that came from the atonement of Christ. The water that was coming from his side when he was pierced by the spirit of the centurion soldier. The third thing are earthen vessels. These were obviously filled. They weren't just empty, they were obviously filled with the provisions. But the vessels themselves, because they are listed separately, the vessels themselves have a spiritual meaning. They refer to believers. It's as if God is telling David that he is now going to be restored to his kingdom and his people, represented by the vessels, will bestow upon him the provisions needed for his victory over Absalom. Paul defines this for us in 2 Corinthians 4.7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, us, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So this is all about restoring David. Note the fourth grouping of things that filled these vessels. Wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, a second batch of parched grain. These items symbolize, all of them together, the bread of life, in addition to the beans and lentils, which are full of protein and detoxifying properties. And here God is providing David and his people with the bread of life, the the strength that they need to go forward, while at the same time, so much physical nourishment, which provides a cleansing of sort from the consequences of David's initial sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And that's why the, the, the idea of beans and lentils because they are detoxifying things which go through the body to detoxify the body, could this mean that God is purging David of those consequences? Again, a restoration. What we have here is a testimony of complete and total restoration between David and his God and the consequences of his sin. However, the blessings don't stop there. You think, wow, that's enough. Honey, butter, and cheese. These three items offer further strength, but they also refer to the gospel in a more specific way. Whenever God spoke of the inheritance of his people, he referred to their dominion inheritance as the land flowing with milk and honey. 
Butter is made from the creamier part of milk, which is full of protein nourishment as well, whereas honey is made from bees, having its own anti-inflammatory properties. So here we find, again, a restoration, not only of David to God, but David to the inheritance that God had given him. But what's interesting about this idea of honey is that honey comes from bees. And the Hebrew word for bees is the word Deborah, where we get our name Deborah from. But the literal word bees or Deborah is the root word for the word congregation. God is restoring the congregation. I believe he is restoring at this point with these items, the congregation of his people to David. And so it is the congregation of Christ that brings forth the honey of the gospel to those in need. And at this point it was David and to those in darkness and to those without hope. And that's why it's so important to continue with the gospel declaration never being silent, never being silent in the face of darkness. And this is why Samson's riddle had the dead lion filled with bees and honey. He was speaking of the sacrifice of the lion of the tribe of Judah that brought forth the congregation and the honey of the gospel unto complete dominion. Now cheese also, another symbolic item. Also, it is made from milk and that too, a reference to the gospel, the milk and the honey all speaking of the gospel. David is being refreshed with all of these glorious things. But Machir and Brazili don't only bring provisions, they bring livestock to those individuals in order to sustain their provisions. They bring sheep. They don't bring ghosts, they bring sheep, always symbolic of God's people. And so I believe that God is again telling David that his kingdom will be full of his devoted people once again in the same way as he had in the days of his obedience. So God uses all of the symbology of sheep and the illusion of shepherding to remind David, notice he brings sheep, reminding David of his days as a faithful youth, his days as a faithful shepherd where he was totally, totally devoted to God and how he is now being restored to that post once again. And once again, there's a lesson here that shouldn't be missed chastisements and its consequences have a duration period only known to God. You know, when David started down this road of chastisement, he didn't know how long it would be. He didn't know how long. But he trusted God that it would last just as long as God had determined and the intensity would be exactly the intensity that God had determined. During that time, whether it's our chastisement of this thing or that thing, We are to bear up under it. We are to learn lessons by it. We are to ask for more faith to endure it. We are to wait until God restores us back to himself fully. We must be mindful during the days of our chastisement. And we see this in David. David never murmured. He never blasphemed. He was much like Job who said, Though he slay me, Yet I will trust him. Can you imagine? So we must be mindful during our periods of chastisement, the times that we go into despair, we go into the darkness of despair. We fear for the future because we forget what God has said that he is in the future. We must be mindful never to murmur or blaspheme while under the disciplinary action of God but rather we are to continue to prayerfully beseech God for the strength to take whatever he's teaching us 
seriously, whether it be deserved beatings in hope of a complete restoration so that we might one day rejoice in the union and communion that we have once again restored when our chastisement time comes to an end. So this restoration story is synonymous with God's restoration of His Son after His time dealing with the rebellion of Adamic mankind, typified by Absalom, who is, of course, as you know, a type of rebellious Adam and his followers, symbolic of the entire human fallen race that has conspired against the Lord and against His Christ, as prophesied in Psalm 2. Now finally, the scripture tells us that Machir and Bazili were very observant to the needs of David. No one sent them a letter, hey, we need this, 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 and this. They knew. They were observant. For they said, the people is hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. That's a practical lesson too. We are so tunnel vision in our own private lives that we don't know what's happening around us. We need to be observant as to the needs of God's kingdom. We need to be observant as to the needs of God's people. We cannot be in an ivory tower bubble, a self-consumed individual. We must be sensitive to the kingdom's needs. We must be sensitive to our brethren's needs. And we must then serve. But we're all waiting around to be told what to do. Brazili, Makia, they didn't get told what to do. Nobody gave them a list. But they knew. And you know why they knew? You know how they knew? Because they cared about people other than themselves. And that is how the body works. The body ministers to one another. If you are part of the body of Christ, then you can never be uninvolved. You can never be divorced. You must be involved as a part of the body of Christ because biblical Christianity is not a clock in and clock out once a week or whenever the notion conveniently arises. It's an intimate relationship with the kingdom of God, the mission of God, the work of God, and the people of God. If you do not know the state of the people, if you do not know the state of the flock, if you do not know the state of the kingdom, then you're not following the example of these two men. And so we must ask ourselves, am I indeed part of the body of Christ? Am I? Oh, we all like, so yeah, I'm, I'm part of the body. The body works together. It works as a unit. It doesn't work alone. I don't see a hand over there doing one thing and a foot over there doing another thing. It works together. So you must ask yourself, if you're going to be painfully honest with yourself, and that is what the scriptures do. The scripture forces us to be painfully honest with the reality of the kingdom. And so we ask, am I indeed part of the body Or am I only pretending to be part of the body? Jesus said this, But he that receiveth seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundred, some sixty, some thirty. And so, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Next, we shall discover the result of Machir and Bazili's work when we move into chapter 18. May God be so pleased to open our hearts to the needs of his people 
and to the kingdom of his glory. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.